Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening. I'm John Hardman, President and CEO of the Carter Center. And it's <laughs> thank you, President Carter, and everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the first of this season's conversations at the Carter Center. This series gives us an opportunity to discuss with our friends and neighbors the work of the center and our peace and health efforts, and to discuss world affairs and world issues with our friends and neighbors. We encourage all of you to learn more about the Carter Center programs and about upcoming conversations at the center by watching past events and the current messages at our website, www.cartercenter.org conversations. You can also subscribe to Carter Center podcast of this series in iTunes, those of you who know all that technology. A special welcome tonight to the Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalism Fellows, the Fellowship Board, the Mental Health Task Force members, our Ambassadors and Legacy Circle guests, the Board of Trustees, our Board of Counselors members, and those of you who are watching from anywhere in the world. Tonight we have the pleasure of hearing President and Mrs. Carter discuss our work, describe their recent travels on behalf of the Carter Center, and then answer your questions. I encourage you to write your questions for the Carters on the index cards that you were provided, and volunteers will be walking down the aisles to collect those written questions during the next half hour before uh, the question and answer period. But we will begin tonight's program by sharing a brief video of our work. conflict in my country and the Carter Center has has offered me the opportunity to work in changing that reality. We are not uh, passive receivers of goodwill and charity. We are people who are becoming empowered to deal with our problems. We are trying to strengthen the networks already existing here and we are trying to strengthen the capacities of the Venezuelans to face their problems and to share with them tools and our knowledge. We are an independent, non-governmental organization 
we're independent of, of the U.S. government, we do not represent the U.S. government, and that actually gives, gives us an advantage. Uh, we have no control over economic sanctions or decisions of other governments. All we have is moral authority and uh, reputation, and that gives us actually more flexibility. This is the first time Indonesians are allowed to elect directly their own leader. So they are now exercising their civil right to elect their leader. This is a very crucial work for an international institution to be here in Indonesia, in Indonesia because uh, with their presence, for example, Carter Center, with their presence here, it will boost the legitimacy of this election. If we find it difficult to make our own statement because of uh, political situation, then we rely on international uh, observers to uh, state our statements. I think that they give people hope. Uh, at least uh, they, give, uh, they give them hope that the operation itself will happen in, a, in a, the right way. The Carter Center is allowing really the people to express their voice. The presence of Carter Center and President Carter himself observing this election give the Palestinian more trust more hope that this election will be real, democratic, uh, and fair election. With international observers here, uh, we, we feel safe that the, um, what people want is what people are going to get, not what the government wants. When the international observers are here, we feel confident that we are not alone here. I think one of the uh, strengths of the Carter Center is that it focuses not just on elections, just that it has other programs as well. In, uh, in Africa, the Carter Center is working on uh, five diseases. They have in common the fact that they affect poor people in rural areas. They generally do not kill people directly, but they are debilitating. And all of them can be treated or prevented very effectively with tools that we have now. The uniqueness of the Carter Center programs is that it has addressed some of these problems that are, are particularly um, found in rural settings and therefore has transformed the, the lives of many rural people. The Carter Center wants the country to be able to function on its own and we rarely uh, take ownership of the projects that we do. We want the local people and the local governments to be successful. This was once the highest endemic village for guinea worm disease remaining in Nigeria. This village of a little over 150 people has had zero cases of guinea worm disease. Person by person, village by village, we're getting rid of this disease in Nigeria. I think there is a lot of respect and trust for the Carter Center. In recognizing the needs and in building hope, I think that the Carter Center is actually build, building power for the people, is actually building the, upon the capacities that the, the, the same people have to deal with their own problems and their own needs.
Well, President and Mrs. Carter, in partnership with Emory University, founded the nonprofit Carter Center 27 years ago. And since then, our programs have helped to improve the lives of millions of people in more than 70 countries. Led by the Carters and an independent board of trustees and a staff of over 150 waging peace, fighting disease, and building hope is the action of the Carter Center by both engaging at the highest levels of government as well as working side by side with the poor and often forgotten people in villages. The Carters are the Center's hardest working volunteers and are involved in all aspects of our work. They travel tirelessly around the world, working with our staff to monitor elections, resolve conflicts, promote human rights, and eradicate diseases. Their vision for the world at peace guides our work here at the Carter Center and serves as an inspiration not only to us, but to millions of people around the world seeking a better way of life. Please join me in welcoming two of the most inspiring leaders of our times, President Carter and his wife, Rosalind. One word there that uh, John used that I hesitated to accept uh, tirelessly. Uh, you should see us sometimes when we get back in planes about midnight after coming all the way from far around in the world and uh, at our age, uh, tiresome might be a better word than tirelessly, but, uh, but everything that is done here is really uh, kind of invigorating and inspirational and adventurous and unpredictable, uh, gratifying, and we're thankful to have partners like you to make it all possible. I'm going to um, go down a list of things very rapidly, just the things that have happened since our last uh, conversations, and I'll be fairly brief about it, and then maybe as much time as we can for questions and for Rosen's report on her programs. The big thing is happening this year, of course, is the upcoming opening of the new museum, which will take place at 10.30 in the morning officially on the first day of October, which happens to be my 85th birthday as well. Uh, and, uh, not entirely a coincidence, I might say. <laughs> and this is sort of very gratifying to me and Rosen after our 63rd wedding anniversary that we passed a few months ago, so we were already getting along in, in experience. Uh, we'll have uh, special things in the museum that never has been in a presidential museum before. One will be uh, about a third of it devoted to our life since we left the White House. And that will be extremely exciting to all of us as well because we spent months and months and months 
with the designers and with uh, Jay Hakes and, and uh, all those that work at the Carter Center with them in making it accurate and also exciting and interesting. And we hope you'll come often and bring your friends and send all the school children that you can uh, influence to come there. The second thing will be uh, a special presentation, fairly brief, that just takes one day in my life as president, derived from my very detailed diary, and it shows what a president does from the time he gets up in the morning until uh, goes to bed at night. It's almost incredible to see it, and it's going to be beautifully presented in the central part of the, uh, of the museum. The third thing will be a, a, a new and unprecedented interactive table where a group of people, like a dozen people, can stand around, and you've seen them on CNN where they stretch maps this way and that way. You can do all that, and you can explore the, the internal workings and hidden mechanisms of what the Carter Center does, and you can even put yourself in the position of an international traveler working for the Carter Center. You get a passport, a virtual passport, and you actually get a written passport later on in the email or in the mail, and then you can uh, take off in an airplane, and you can tell them where to go, and they'll land in the Middle East or land wherever you want to learn it. It's going to be a very exciting event, and I'm looking forward to seeing that myself. So that will all take place uh, as scheduled, and uh, they assured me all that it looks like I've got a long way to go that it's going to be done on time, and I don't have any doubt about that. Now to get back to the Carter Center's work in the last year or so, we continue with our program on elections. We finished our 76th election in Lebanon in April. This is one of our most difficult ones. Those of you who have, who have tried to study the Lebanese political system or the ethnic division system know how complex it is. Uh, but it was the first safe and free and fair election held in Lebanon. Everybody agrees since at least 1972. And now the government's trying to come back together based on the election results. So far, they still are having some problem. But as we uh, do in almost every case now, we stay in the country after the election is over. We don't just walk out and leave a country in the doldrums, and uh, that was a very successful election. Uh, we also have uh, now scheduled to attend our fourth very troubled election, very challenging election in Palestine. The other three have been, I would say, among the 76, maybe the three best ones. No corruption, no violation of rules and laws, uh, totally safe and free, completely honest, and everybody accepted the results uh, peacefully. And we are now planning for January of uh, 2010 for that next election, but a lot has to be done before then. And some of the participants in the Palestinian community are making claims to have later on in the year. But whenever it is conducted, the Carter Center uh, will be there. Another one is in Sudan, perhaps the most troubled country in which the Carter Center has been involved for the last 20 years. More than 3 million people have died in the horrible civil war in Sudan. And as you know now, the country is basically divided up into two parts officially, that is the northern part and the southern part of Sudan. And in a few years, the southerners will have a right to uh, vote in a referendum to see whether or not they will become a free and independent nation of South Sudan. And not too long ago, we were over there looking at the problems also in Darfur. But the Carter Center has, has had a permanent presence in Sudan, uh, and we're working with all the participants there, the government, the southerners, and everyone else, to make sure that we can monitor the registration of voters, the preparation of a voters list, and then the conduct of an election, which we help and believe will be a major step toward permanent peace for the people of that troubled country. Another country that's been divided with horrible uh, human rights abuses is Cote d'Ivoire, or the Ivory Coast. 
And we expect to have the election there this November, and the Carter Center is preparing to be a monitor of that process. We continue to stay involved indirectly or directly with a full-time presence there in, uh, in uh, Nepal. As you know, Nepal is where Mount Everest is, and the Carter Center has helped to bring about an end to the war there and also has helped to bring about an honest election that was held. And now, of course, the different factions are trying to put together a government permanently that can write a new constitution for them. So that kind of covers very quickly uh, and briefly. I'll answer questions later if you have them the elections that we have. Remember that every election in which the Carter Center is involved is a difficult or troubled election that, in our opinion, could not be held successfully without the Carter Center's presence. If the, Carter, if the election was going to be held easily and properly and legally and safely, we wouldn't get involved. We just go there when the people in the country believe that only if we come can it be a successful election for them. We're trying also to deal with conflicts in the world, I'd say one of the most troubled countries in which we've been involved, Rosa and I have been going there since 1989, is Liberia. Liberia is the country in Africa that's closest to the United States. As you know, the government was established in the 1840s by slaves who were freed in our country, went there and established a government. And we've been trying to help with them to have honest elections, and which they have had now. They have a wonderful uh, president who's the only woman leader in uh, Africa elected to be president. And we're trying to help them put together now a more firm and dependable judicial system and helping them with some other issues. For instance, in some of the rural areas of Liberia, it's not a crime to rape a woman. And there's no possibility there for a woman, for instance, to inherit any of her husband's property if he dies. And those kinds of uh, laws are sometimes enforced just by the bark on a tree or by drawing lots. So the Carter Center is deeply involved with the president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, to put together a more comprehensible and a more dependable and reliable judicial system in those rural areas. We're also working in the Middle East. In the last 16 months, I've been to the Middle East four times. And each time we go, uh, I include not only uh, Lebanon and Jordan and, and uh, Syria, but also, of course, Israel and the West Bank, and when I can get in to it, into Gaza. Uh, this past April, I was able to get into Gaza and saw the um, incredible destruction of that small portion of land in the Holy Land that's inhabited by 1.6 million Palestinians. And they've had their schools, their hospitals, their business establishment. Almost every business in Gaza has been wiped out. Their farmland is uh, off limits for the farmers. They can't get seed or fertilizer. And the Israelis have not permitted even one single sack of semen or one board of lumber or one pane of glass to go in to repair approximately 50,000 homes, according to the United Nations, that has been destroyed or severely damaged uh, by Israeli bombs and missiles. And so we're very deeply concerned about uh, Gaza. And also, of course, that's where Hamas rules. And we're also working behind the scenes and actively to bring about a reconciliation between the portion, Hamas portion of the Palestinians and the Fatah portion so that they can have orchestrated a good election for this coming year, as I've already mentioned. We're also working in uh, Colombia and uh, Ecuador. They've been at odds now for about a year and a half. They have no diplomatic relations with each other. Uh, conflict breaks out along the border. And we're directly involved and sometimes indirectly involved 
in trying to bring reconciliation between those two countries. Bolivia is another troubled nation. Uh, we're heading now to an election in Bolivia. Uh, we've had a full-time presence there to make sure that the transforming form of government that for the first time has brought in excluded people, including indigenous Indians in Bolivia, can be given a chance to work harmoniously with those who in the past have controlled everything about Bolivia, including the uh, politics and the economics and everything else. So that country is still struggling to find a stable form of government based on true democracy, and we're there to help them. I'm going to skip down now to, uh, over now to China. As you know, the Carter Center has been deeply involved in China at the invitation of that government uh, for more than 10 years in helping them have honest and, and open democratic elections in their small villages. There are about 600,000 small villages in China, and they've made a lot of progress there. There's still some struggle in China's government itself to extend this democracy to other forms of government, that is, the Communist Party system. The little villages are not part of the Communist Party system. That starts with big towns and then counties and provinces. And they elect the delegates that go to the, uh, go to the National People's Congress every five years. But we're, we're still working in China, and now we're expanding our efforts to work with China on, on better health care for Africa and other places. And we're also helping to uh, proceed with further economic development in those small villages to which we've now introduced uh, honest elections. We have a wonderful website that is used by scholars in this country and around the world to monitor what's going on uh, inside China. Now to switch to uh, the last thing I'm going to mention, and that is uh, disease. As you know, the Carter Center now deals with five almost completely unknown diseases in this country. They have strange names with which all of us have obviously have become familiar. You know about guinea worm, perhaps, or dracunculosis, or onchocerciasis, or rubber blindness, schistosomiasis, which is very uh, terrible, not only in in Africa, but also in other parts of the world, including China, as a matter of fact. Uh, trachoma, which is caused by filthy eyes. And, and, the, and lymphatic polariasis, which some of you may know as, uh, as uh, elephantiasis. It's when your sexual organs and your arms and legs swell up to grotesque sizes. We combine those efforts, which are very successful up to now, with dealing with malaria, because malaria is, is, uh, is caused by the same kind of uh, mosquitoes that also call lymphatic polariasis. And so we're, we're working with, with uh, com combinations of diseases now so that when we go into a country at, at a large expense to ourselves, we can deal not only with one disease, but sometimes with two or three or four diseases that afflict people in the same little village. Guinea worm is our most uh, highly publicized disease. Nobody knew about it uh, when we started with it. Uh, it's one of the most terrible diseases that there is. And we've been able to cut that uh, incidence down from 3.6 million when we started in more than 20,000 villages down now to just one-tenth of one percent of the way we started. We're down below 5,000 cases now, and we know where every case is, and we have them under, under close scrutiny. We hope and believe it in the next couple of years we're going to have uh, guinea worm erased from the face of the earth. To prevent rubber blindness, last year we treated 11.7 11.7 million people by putting uh, free medicines in their mouths which prevent their ever going blind with the diseases in inside their bodies. And in the southern part of this uh, hemisphere, uh, we, now will, we, we will never have another person go blind in this hemisphere from onchocerciasis because of the exclusive work uh, of the Carter Center. So those are the kind of things that we're doing uh, in health care. 
Our, our next excursion will be just in two or three weeks. We're going down to uh, Hispaniola, which, as you know, is Haiti and Dominican Republic, to try to get rid of the last incidences of malaria and perhaps lymphatic filariasis in this hemisphere. We don't have malaria anywhere else uh, in this hemisphere, and we don't want it to spread, so we're going to start a program there. The final thing I'll say is that we have, uh, at the Carter Center, the only international task force on disease eradication in the world. And, and that's a, a, a program that, under Don Hopkins' direction, works with many other people. And regularly, we analyze every human illness there is. And we ascertain, because of latest technological developments, medical de developments, and, and the status of those diseases, which one might actually be completely eradicated from the face of the earth with proper treatment and proper funding, or also which ones might be eradicated from a, from a particular continent or country. Uh, and, and that's what this, uh, uh, this International Task Force on Disease Eradication does. So that opens up opportunities for us in the future as we succeed perhaps with uh, guinea worm to take on another disease, possibly measles where we'll start trying to eradicate measles from the face of the earth. And now I'm going to turn the program over to the number one boss at the Carter Center and the one uh, whom we've been waiting to hear from, and that's my wife, Rosalind. Thank you. Well, it's just one time a year, a year that I have my um, journalism fellows here and so I'm going to ask them to stand tonight. Let me tell you a little bit about them first. That we have fellowships, mental health fellowships for journalists, so that journalists can learn how to cover mental illnesses accurately, and, um, and also so they will become interested in the subject and, and give it a lot of publicity. Um, and we have um, eight every year, two from this year. We have two from South Africa, two from... Um, well, two from six from the United States, and two from Romania. My man, my, my, mine is black from Romania. Excuse me. And we have we started international with New Zealand, and we had New Zealand. We we tell them that we will work with them and fund them for five years, and then they own their own to start their own program in their uh, own in their country to keep. To have their own program, and it's worked out well. New Zealand has a really great program now, and South Africa is, I think, maybe in the fourth year, or the fifth. In the, that time is going to be up pretty soon. We haven't decided who we, where we're going next time, and um, so we've got, um, and I think we have um, um, the advisors. Every every journalist has an advisor uh, who is a mental health. Um, expert, I think all of them are people that I've worked with over the years. Um, and, so, and, and as John said earlier, the task force members are here. I'm going to ask my mental health people to stand up so that you can see just how many we have here that I'm excited and pleased about. Can you stand up? This is kind of a special year uh, in the um, journalism program because this year we passed 100 journalists who've been through our program. In fact, we've had uh, 108 go through the program, which is uh, really pleasing to me. 
Uh, well, we have a lot going on in the program. In, in November, we have our annual symposium. And this year, it's going to be on preparing for health care reform. Um, because with health care reform going on, we want to be sure we take advantage um, of, of the uh, process and be sure that we get behavioral health care included. And um, one good ally we have is Michelle Obama because she's interested in PTSD in our uh, soldiers, veterans that are coming home. Um, and so we are, we are the, that's what our, the subject of our symposium is going to be. And also Georgia has a, just a terrible mental health system. And uh, we've been working closely with um, the advocacy groups in the state. In fact, we, we have gone beyond just the mental health advocacy groups we got. I spoke to the pastor, the Atlanta Pastors Association one day to get all of the religious community in the, in the Atlanta area involved in um, supporting us in our work to, with um, um, the, the state to be sure we have a better system, a, real, a system with real quality care for mentally ill people. Over 130 people died in our, I think it was the adolescent system, wasn't it just the adolescent, children adolescent hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, in the last, just from patient neglect, things that they should not have died from. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution had a big expose. And um, they were under court order, but just as the Bush administration went out of um, office, um, they solved the case. I mean, they gave the judgment. And all they said was, to be sure, well, it's probably a little more complicated than this, but what they said was that you have to be sure people are treated right and they get follow-up service when they leave the hospital. Well, we didn't like that because we want more specific things. And so that's why we, the mental health community has really joined together. We had sessions with the police forces and the sheriff's association, just get all kinds of people in who are not normally involved to be working on that. And also, um, Baslan Center for Mental Health Law is involved. And um, the Justice Department, we actually got a judge that was uh, on our side. And so we hope that we're going to have a better mental health system in Georgia in the, in the future. Um, Jimmy talks about the things we did and about going to Bolivia. Um, he, he does, we have some really interesting times. And one of my favorite times was going to see the peasants in Bolivia, the ones that wear those beautiful outfits with little black hats on. We met with a women's group, and uh, they were really strong women. I mean, they were demanding. And it, was, it was fun because they were sitting there all chewing cocoa leaves, <laughs> at the little, and they put them in the mouth, and then they were talking and talking, they, and they were strong, and they were, anyway, we had a good time. They actually passed me some cocoa leaves. <laughs> and I was really disappointed because it didn't give me a buzz at all. <laughs> but when we, left, when we left this group that was just really, really strong group, Jimmy said, it's kind of interesting to meet with reticent women in it. <laughs> but we have a lot of 
fun. It's not all work on these trips, but it is so interesting. We meet so many wonderful people. And I went with Jimmy um, on the trip to um, Israel and Palestine. And um, I, um, I had my own schedule. He was with another group. And um, lucky for me, I had my own schedule because I was able to um, I, I take Karen Ryan, who's the head of our human rights program, with me. And I met with um, human rights uh, workers in uh, Israel and in Palestine. I went to a um, center in Israel, the um, Israeli Center for Treatment of Psychotrauma. And it was exciting. In fact, I met a man there that I had known in the past um, who's working down there in Israel. They treat anybody that comes in, whether they're from Palestine or in, uh, anywhere. But what happens is very few people come in. And so then I, I found out the name of a woman who is a member of the Knesset that is responsible, or not responsible, but she's the one that knows about people coming from Gaza and the West Bank uh, into, well, coming in for treatment. And very, very few come in. And she was really nice. She's not been in the Knesset long. Um, and um, she said, told me that um, everybody that could get out of Gaza was treated. Well, I knew that was not right, but, and so later when we were talking to some human rights people, they said that was, that, that uh, Hamas did at one time not let them come out. And she had said Hamas didn't let them come out. But that was just for a few weeks. And now there are just so many people who are sick and really um, seriously ill who cannot come out. And so we have an office in Palestine. And uh, I have um, told, we told her we'd get in touch with, get her in touch with our person there so she can know what's going on. And I hope that's going to be helpful. We also met with different people who, like the um, ambassador to the Palestinian Authority from Egypt, and he's helping us get some students um, out of, of Gaza. But there's so many students there um, that have scholarships to American universities but can't get out to go to school. And they also now can't get, they won't let them come from Gaza into the West Bank uh, to go to college. So we, I met with people. I went to a refugee camp once, and actually they had been attacked in the night. And, I was, and the woman who's running it now is a third-generation refugee. And uh, she was telling me that, uh, that, that she said, it was just attacked last night, and, and uh, they've been up since midnight because that's when they came in. It was about 9 o'clock in the morning, I guess, then. Who attacked them? Hmm? Who attacked them? Um, the Israelis came in and took four people out. And they, they fired up fire and asked if it woke them up, and she just laughed. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, you, um, but um, when I asked, I said, well, how often did this happen? She said, oh, it just happens two or three times, a, a three or four times a month now. Last year it was happening every day. So... You know, it seemed to me that she feels like they have a little bit of relief, which was kind of interesting to feel that that was relief. I also, um, um, are you going to tell them about going to Berlin? Uh-oh, we're going to have questions, Sean. Okay. But one other, two other things I want to tell you, because one place I went was the International Center 
in Bethlehem, and and the man who uh, runs it is I think he's Lutheran pastor, and um, he said you always hear bad things on the West Bank, so we're going to tell you some good things today. And he had 15 young people there that he he called it. Um, uh, training, well, he said, I'm just training a new generation of leaders. And he had these young people who were working, some with children, some with elderly, developing leadership in um, in Bethlehem, in that area of Palestine. So there were some good things going on. One other thing was um, in um, the Bethlehem area is um, a man who who is well-known, Mustafa, whatever his name is, um, has these centers all over the West Bank where he's mainstreaming people with disabilities into the children, into the schools. And they had people from all over Palestine, um, mothers and fathers with some of their children with disabilities, some with mental health um, problems, and uh, one had MS. But And they were... And they all told stories about how they'd not been able to get help and how that they were getting help. It was it was really emotional for me to see. So I'll stop talking so we can answer questions. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's interesting we have a number of questions, but we also have a large number of questions from the website for the first time, which is, uh, which is great. Uh, the first question to both of you is, what is your favorite memory since starting the Carter Center? I think my favorite memory is the visit to a small village just uh, outside the capital of uh, Ghana in Accra. This village had about 500 people, which was about the size of Plains. And two-thirds of the total population had guinea worms coming out of their bodies. And uh, I've got 20 of them couldn't come out into the uh, square where I was because they couldn't drag their bodies out of the huts. And I visited some of them. And I noticed a beautiful young woman standing there that I thought was holding a newborn baby. And when I walked over to her, I saw that she was holding her right breast in her arm. And a guinea worm was coming out of the nipple of her breast. And later, after we left, they found that 11 other guinea worms were coming out of that same woman's body. That's not my favorite memory. My favorite memory is going back a year later. Zero guinea worm. And that village has never seen another guinea worm since then. And that's the case with about 20,000 villages in the world. Well, I can't tell my favorite story because I've told it so many times, Jimmy doesn't want to hear it again. <laughs> but it's about building latrines and the difference it makes to build latrines, and I won't go into all of it. And, and people clean up their yards, and, 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 but I will tell you this about it. In this area of Ethiopia, we started in 2004 toward the end thinking that we, we teach them. We sent one person, I think it was a tropical disease center in London, but he taught them how to build a latrine. And we thought they might do 10,000 before the end of that year. They did 89,000 before the end of that year because the women got excited. And now, uh, and we, 
and we teach them also to wash their faces, which they've never thought about. And uh, now in this area of Ethiopia, we have, um, they have, they do it themselves. We teach them how and they do it. They have built over half a million latrines. Mm -hmm. 375,000. 375,000. 375,000. Okay, well, figure, but it's close, close. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I was just saying what you said the last time I listened to you. <laughs> We've built more than, more than a half a million in Africa, but in Ethiopia alone, 375,000. Okay, well, I thought it was in the same area, but anyway. And they're still building. 350,000 is good. They're still but, building. But anyway. Yeah. Still um, building. Are you through? <laughs> we're, still, we're still building, but what, what I started to say is that to teach them to wash their face, that one little, asked this one little girl to show Jimmy how she washed her face, and they had sticks tied together around so that a gourd sat in, in it, and she pulled the stuff out and washed her face. And now the teachers in this whole area of Ethiopia check the children's faces every day to be sure they've washed them. And I think that that's just a really, really good thing that the Carter Center's done. So. Great. And they'll never go blind. Do you see an end to the Israeli occupation of the West Bank during the Obama administration? If we are ever going to have peace in the Middle East, the Israelis will have to withdraw from the West Bank. That's a key question. So the, the question could be, are we going to have peace during the Obama administration? When I was president, um, Menachem Begin at Camp David promised me that they would not build any more settlements in the West Bank until all the peace processes were over. So there is an opportunity for the Palestinians and Israelis to negotiate to leave some of the Israeli settlers in Palestine where they are. And this is one of the recommendations that has been made in the past. And with just, in just 2% of the land in Palestine, just right adjacent to Jerusalem basically, about half of the total Israeli settlers live there. And uh, if I were in charge, which I'm not, I would advocate leaving those 2% there and swapping 2% of the land that Israel owns to the Palestinians. And then with that 2% of the land swapped, you could build a corridor to connect Gaza with the West Bank, which is a distance of about 27 miles. And then the, the Palestinians could have a railroad and, and highway that goes from one part of their territory, that is Gaza, into the West Bank. So I would say that unless Israel is willing to withdraw almost completely from the West Bank, with that small exception I made, we will never see peace between Israel and its neighbors. I might add one other thing. About 60% of all Israeli citizens for the last 30 years have said they are in favor of withdrawing from the settlements in the West Bank in exchange for peace. But there's a hard core of Israelis who doesn't want to do it, and so far they have not done it. I hope they will. Have you had any further contact with Mugabe's regime in Zimbabwe? What do you see as the future for Zimbabwe? Well, one of the things that happened when I was president in those ancient times was in 1980 we uh, formed the democracy in uh, Zimbabwe to replace the, the totalitarian 
apartheid regime of Rhodesia. And I was very excited back in those days when Mugabe was elected in an honest and free election. After about a dozen years, though, he turned into be a horrible uh, uh, oppressor of his people and terribly corrupt. Uh, we went down there this, this past year. He wouldn't let us into Zimbabwe, but the key people came out to meet uh, with us. And since then, they have formed a, a coalition government with his major political opponent who actually won the election last May. And they're now trying to put together a fragile government that has got, made some progress on controlling inflation and maybe will open up some hope for the future. Uh, the future best prospect is to have an honest election for a change and to let Mugabe step down and uh, either live in exile or, or stay in his own country with some honest uh, leader guiding the people of Zimbabwe. This is a country that has tremendous potential. Uh, it was known back in the early days of the Carter Center when we, have a, we had a major agriculture program there. It's kind of the breadbasket of that part of Africa. But under Mugabe's uh, regime, the production of food has dropped down precipitously, so now they have to import food rather than export it. So I, I think the future of Zimbabwe can be bright if we can get rid of oh, Mugabe. Uh, Mrs. Carter, what impact has your journalism fellowship program had in overcoming mental health stigma, and how do you measure that? I don't know how to measure it, but that, and that's something we've been working on for a long time, uh, for the last couple of years. At the Carter Center, everything is measured. I think... One of the reasons, because Bill Fagey, who had been at Centers for Disease Control, was one of the early um, uh, directors. And so everybody has to measure outcomes of what they do in all our programs, except we got away with it for a long time <laughs> and in mental health, because how do you measure stigma? And um, so we've had two sessions with national and international uh, experts on stigma, and we're trying to come up now with some guidelines on, on how to measure stigma. Uh, I, I believe that stigma is lifting a little bit. We have a long way to go. But um, I think young people are more willing. In fact, um, in our meeting yesterday, we had a pollster, and she said that people are more willing now to go to mental health professionals uh, they have found than in the past, and that's a good sign. Um, but she said also that um, um, people now, more than in the past, associate mental illness with violence, and that's a really, really terrible thing that's happened. Um, but I do think that, um, of course, mental health, is, mental health is covered a lot more now um, than in the past, but we still have a long way to go. But, but measuring it is very difficult, and we are, we are really working to try to find some guidelines. And I think we're getting close. Right. So. It's slow, but uh, progress. Progress is being made. I think, yeah. progress is, I think progress is being made in overcoming stigma, and I think our fellows have something to do with that. <laughs> right. We think so. Both of you look terrific. Both of you look terrific.
What is your secret for this? And will you share your diet and exercise tips with all of us in your next book? I would say the secret is low expectations. <laughs> but people look up and see people already in their 80s and still sitting erect and walking in by themselves. They say, well, you look terrific. So there's not much expectation. Uh, but we do, uh, Rosen is an expert on diet, and she makes sure that every day's meals that we have in our house are perfectly balanced with carbohydrates and proteins and so forth. And uh, we take a lot of exercise. Uh, we have a swimming pool outside our house now that we've had five or six years. And, and I swim every day. Rosen swims a day. She doesn't have to go out at night and fix her hair. And, uh, and when that happens, she exercises on, the, uh, on some kind of a machine. And, uh, and we ride bikes a lot. And so we stay in good, in good condition. And uh, we've just been blessed uh, with, uh, I would say, pretty good companionship. It helps both of us get along when we have some trouble. So we have, we have a good, good life, thanks mainly to what the Carter Center has done to, to re-stimulate us and to give us uh, a gratifying existence. And we stay busy. We stay busy, that's for sure. Very busy. <laughs> Do you think health care reform is possible in our country and if so, what solutions do you recommend? Yes, I think it's possible. And I don't think there's any doubt that, that this year uh, President Obama and the Congress will pass some kind of health reform legislation so they can say we passed health reform. This is a long-time uh, effort. Uh, in 1979, I had a complete uh, comprehensive health care bill approved and financed that would have started in, a, in phases. It was very interesting. First of all, we would cover every incidence of catastrophic health care there was. If you had a catastrophic disease that cost you more than a certain percentage of your income, the government would pay the difference. Secondly, we included every person. At that time, there were only 15 million who were not covered, and we extended the coverage to all 15 million. And the third thing we did saved an awful lot of money, and that is that we covered every woman who was uh, in a prenatal state, and we covered the baby's uh, health coverage and the mother's health coverage for one year. That's all we could do. So we had comprehensive coverage for prenatal, postnatal, and birth, and for the mother, but just for one year. We didn't have all the rest of the years. But we, our plan was to extend it from then. And it would have passed, except uh, at that time, uh, we had a full approval of, uh, of all the committee chairmen in the House and Senate who publicly endorsed it with, in me, with me uh, in a, a press conference, except the, the key senator, and that was Senator Kennedy, who at that moment had decided to run against me for president, and he didn't want to see us have a success, so he killed the bill. And so I think it's still there to be resurrected. And uh, I, I think there's going to be a lot of squabbles back and forth about exactly what you can do uh, to cut down on the uh, insurance company's independence and make them cover people adequately. And I think we'll extend the coverage now to the other 30 or 40 million dollars, uh, 30 or 40 million people that are not covered. But exactly the details on it, uh, I think, have still got to be worked out. But I think I feel sure we'll have some kind of comprehensive health coverage at the end 
of this uh, this year, perhaps, and if not, then next year. Didn't, didn't your health care reform have catastrophic? That's what I said. It, it, for, yeah, for everybody. It had catastrophic coverage for everybody, and everybody was covered, but we couldn't get complete comprehensive health care for everyone except the one-year-olds and the mothers. That, but it was planned. We had all the money in the, in the bank to do that in the budget, and, and we were going to add years on as the, the years went by. So that if we had just started then in, in 1979, uh, by now those children would be, what, 30 years older. So, but anyway, that was what we had our dream of. But uh, there were a lot of uh, politics back in those days. As a, I'm sure there's not any politics involved now. So, uh, but even, even with the politics, I think we get I, I would advocate, and I've urged Obama through emails, to go ahead and just depend on the Democrats and get, a, get bills passed and forget about the Republicans. I don't think he's going to get any Republican vote. What role should the United States play in advancing universal human rights? Well, we ought to be in the forefront of human rights advancement, leading the entire world and setting an example that would make all other democracies jealous and encourage the ones who violate human rights to correct their ways. And I think in addition to that, we should use the full resources and influence of the United States to punish the op oppressors who take human rights away from their own people. That's what we did back when I was uh, in office, and I don't think anybody doubted that, that we were playing that role. This was a transforming thing. Uh, I think it had a lot to do with the downfall of the Soviet Union, but it also had a lot to do with uh, transforming South America. If you would remember that far back, I don't know how old many of you are, but, but uh, it, uh, way over half of the countries in Latin America when I became president were dictatorships. Uh, Chile and Argentina, Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, Paraguay, I could just go down the list. All of them had military dictatorships. Now every one of those is a democracy. And the reason is that they adopted human rights as a prime commitment and then built on that to build their own government. Before that, Democratic and Republican presidents were in bed with the dictators because of economic benefits. For instance, if, if you had a, a country that produced a lot of uh, tin, like Bolivia, or produced a lot of bananas, or grapefruit, or pineapple, the corporations in America would form a partnership and even own the banana groves and so forth. And so our government would form a, a partnership with the military dictators to make sure that the corporate profits poured into our country. And the ones that uh, contested that were those indigenous people that were deprived of an equal status in their own country. And they demanded basic rights. And they were generally stigmatized as communists under the influence of Cuba. And even this even happened in the Catholic Church, where liberation theologists, so-called, were, were stigmatized by Rome because they insisted on the basic rights of the poor people that attended the Catholic Church. So it was a, a, a difficult thing to do. But I think now that Bush has gone out of office and he's quit the uh, deliberate violation of human rights in our country, now we'll see President Obama and the Congress and the U.S. courts move back toward a complete commitment so that once again the United States, our country, can raise a higher banner of human rights 
as an inspiration to every other nation on earth. That's what we need to do. What are your thoughts regarding the recent outburst by Representative Joe Wilson of South Carolina during President Obama's recent address to the Joint Session of Congress? Do you recall a similar event in your political career? I'm going to be frank with you all. I think it's based on racism. There's an inherent... There is an inherent feeling among many people in this country that an African-American ought not to be president and ought not to be given the same respect as if uh, he were white. And this has permeated politics ever since I've been involved in it back in the 1960s, not only in the South, but also uh, in many places throughout the nation. And the outbursts that we see, um, the scatological language, the sign that I saw on television last night, we should bury Obama with Kennedy, for instance. And Obama is a Nazi. And Obama's picture with uh, Hitler's mustache on it. Those kind of things are not just uh, casual uh, outcomes of a sincere debate over whether we should have a national program in health care or, or not. It's, it's deeper than that. And, and I, I had a long discussion about this today with Brian Williams. And I think that that's uh, what has happened, unfortunately, in our country. I believe it's going to be self-correcting. And today, as you may have, I watched the news this evening, Jim Lurie report, and uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives today, they, they condemned uh, Joe Wilson for having made that kind of remark to the President of the United States. We have to remember, we have to remember that, that this kind of thing goes on in uh, Great Britain. Uh, in the debates in the, in the parliament. I've been there and I've seen it. It's, it's, it's very vituperative sometimes, but, but that's different. You wouldn't hear one of those members of the British parliament saying that about the Queen of England, uh, who's the head of state. In our country, it's different. The president is not only the head of a government, but he's also the head of state. And no matter who he is or how much you disagree with the policies, he ought, ought to be treated with respect in a... In a, in a official forum like a joint session of the U.S. Congress. I think it was a dastardly thing to do, and I believe it was so bad that it's going to be corrected by the overwhelming majority of Democrats and Republicans in the, in the weeks ahead. Regarding the center's public health projects, could you explain about how you approach villagers who have a different concept of illness than we do in the United States. In other words, getting sick from spirit loss versus our biomedical concept of disease. There's a lot of, uh, of uh, distrust in many villages in Africa, for instance, where we have worked so hard for the last 20 years on guinea worm and other diseases. Unfortunately, these people have never known success. 
rarely in their own country, in their own lives, and, and certainly not brought about by the kindness or generosity or honesty of foreign aid workers. And when we went into many uh, small villages, Rosen and John Harmon uh, and others of us, Don Hopkins particularly, we would find that they didn't believe us when we told them the origin of guinea worm. We would tell them that it came from their little water hole. They didn't have any other source of water. Uh, and they would uh, think that there was a sacrilegious thing to say because the quarter center representatives were declaring that their sacred water hole was filthy and a source of disease. And they said, uh, if it hadn't been for our water hole, our ancestors wouldn't have lived. I wouldn't be alive. Our village wouldn't exist. So it's a, it's a condemnation of our faith to say that the disease comes out of the water hole. Another problem that we had was with witch doctors, so-called, who made their living treating guinea worm cases. The only, you can't cure guinea worm once it starts. And when the worm starts coming out of your body, it takes about 30 days to do so. The treatment in the past has been to wrap that worm around a stick or something, and you can put a little tension on it, not enough to break it, and you might cut that 30 days down to 20 days. Well, they got paid for that and for treating the disease, and this was going to take away the source of our income. In the village I mentioned earlier about my best experience, they'd never seen another case of guinea worm, and they'd probably forgotten all about guinea worm. And so those are the kind of things that you uh, run into. One of the biggest setbacks, for instance, on polio eradication, which is now in a stalemate. They're not making any progress now on polio eradication. The reason is that in one northern part of uh, Nigeria, a, a Muslim uh, leader, he was a governor, said that the uh, treatment uh, of polio with the vaccines was a white folks' effort to sterilize the children and to keep the people from having their own religion's faith. And so they stopped all treatment of polio. And now they've tracked polio cases in India by genetic means directly back to that place in Nigeria where the, where the polio started all over again. So you run into those kind of uh, ethnic and social and religious problems and what you have to do and what the Carter Center has been so successful in doing is to build up their confidence in us so they know that if Don Hopkins says this is the problem that you have and this is what we can do about it with your help and put the responsibility on them, that they will do it. Sometimes we don't do that. The USAID program, for instance, in the last 30 years has changed from USAID workers doing something in a village, in a country, to contracting with American co corporations who set up to receive USAID funds and then they provide the services. And you can imagine what small percentage of that actually gets to the people. Well, that builds up distrust. And so when a lot of money flows into a country, it builds up corruption. Those are the kind of things you have to watch out for. And I believe that one of the reasons the Carter Center has been so successful is that we've adequately understood the life and the uh, am ambitions and hopes and fears and dreams of the people with whom we work in Africa and other places. And also I think it's because of Jimmy's human rights policy when he was in the White House because people, people think he cares about them. Yeah.
The next question is from a 12-year-old. Do you have any pets? I have three dogs, a yellow lab, a Jack Russell, and a Wheaton Terrier. Uh, first of all, I sympathize with you. Uh, we don't have any pets now, although in the past we've had a lot of pets, including Amy's. Amy still has five cats in her house, but we don't have any in our house. The reason is we're gone so much. If John Hodgman would let us stay home every now and then so we could feed a kitty cat and a puppy dog, we probably would. Uh, before I went to the White House, uh, ever since I was uh, back home from the Navy, I always had at least two or three trained bird dogs. And we generally had a cat to hold, keep down the mice around the house. But, um, but when, I, when I finally uh, went to the White House, I gave away my, my last bird dog. Uh, I had to put down one. I wrote a poem about it, the best poem in my book, by the way, which is still on sale. Uh, the name is Fort. But uh, at this moment, we don't have, we don't have pets because we just are not home enough to take care of them. Right? Yeah, but it was after we got home from the White House we had them. Yeah, we had, Amy had, had cats after we got home from the White House for quite a while. And we, had, and we did, too, for a while. Then the Carter Center started taking us away. Right. What, if any, reform is occurring related to U.S. elections, and will the Carter Center monitor U.S. elections? Well, as I said, we've monitored 76 elections around the world. The United States doesn't qualify to have someone like the Carter Center monitor an election. We wouldn't dream of going into a nation that had laws like America and try to conduct an election. First of all, we demand that there be a central election commission that's basically trusted by all political parties who have full control of the conduct of the election and the counting of the votes afterwards. We have, in all practical purposes, about 4,000 election commissions in our country because every county has pretty much control over the local voting procedures and so forth. Secondly, we don't go into a country unless all the major candidates have about the same access to public news media. And in almost every country in the world, it's free. Our television and radio uh, organizations, NBC, ABC, all of them, they make a lot of money on election year by charging candidates and so one of the main reasons we have to raise so much money is to pay for the right of American candidates who qualify to present their platform to the American people. So there are a lot of things that we wouldn't do. Uh, after the 2000 debacle in Florida, where Al Gore won the election nationwide and also in Florida, but the Supreme Court ruled the other way, uh, there was an election commission set up that I headed in partnership with Gerald Ford. And we've made about 85 recommendations. And for the first time in American history, the U.S. Congress interceded in the election process. In the past, they had said this is a state's rights. They passed a, a major bill called HAVA, Help America Vote Act, H-A-V-A. And it transformed a lot of the voting procedures in America. One of the things most memorable is uh, the touch screens or the electronic voting, a lot of other things as well, like reg registration. Uh, we had some remaining problems in 2004. President Ford was not able to serve, 
But uh, Jim Baker took his place representing the Republicans, and I served again. This was a program that was orchestrated by American University as a staff, and we made uh, 85 recommendations on that case. One of the recommendations, for instance, is to have a, a touchscreen and a backup paper ballot so everybody will know when they vote, they can look at the paper ballot and say, this is the way I voted, and then put it in the box, and you can count it later. A lot of countries in the world do that. Venezuela's been doing that for five elections. But so far, the Congress has not been willing to touch the America's very foul election procedures on a national basis. I would say, though, that, that many states, now I can't give you a, a number, have adopted the recommendations that Jim Baker and I made with about 50 other people, and they are putting it into effect state by state. So there's been some substantial improvements. But as far as reforming the American electoral system, no, and it really needs to be done. I'm, in, I'm inclined to over-answer questions, and I know that you realize that before you came tonight, so I'm not going to apologize. What is the relationship of the Carter Center to the Center for Disease Control, and when, uh, when it comes to the eradication of diseases? Well, the Carter Center started, you might say, in partnership with Emory University on the one hand and with the Centers for Disease Control on the other. Uh, for a long time, I was the head of the Carter Center, the only one. But then we got a full-time director, who was Dr. William Fagy, <clears throat> who had been the director of the Centers for Disease Control. And so with his dual knowledge and the tie between the two, we became very dependent increasingly dependent on the Centers for Disease Control. So some of our key people who have become involved, particularly in the healthcare part of the Carter Center's work, came from, came from the, the Centers for Disease Control. Some have even served for a number of years at the Carter Center and then gone back to CDC. I would say the most notable example of that, in addition to Bill Feige, who went on to the Gates Foundation, has been Don Hopkins. Don Hopkins was the expert in the Centers for Disease Control, not only for, not only for uh, uh, guinea worm, but also for smallpox. He helped Bill Feige eradicate smallpox, and then he had guinea worm, so when the Carter Center got ready to adopt guinea worm as a project, Don Hopkins came over. So I say it's a very good, wonderful working relationship on an equal partnership basis between these two wonderful organizations. And that was 1986? Seven, when Don Hopkins yeah. came, and he's the head of all of our health programs now. Yeah, Don is in charge of everything now. Of course, you health saw programs. him on the screen tonight. And Don had been deputy director of the Center for Disease Control before coming to the Carter Center, right. so we had strong leadership. I know that you visited Bolivia and spoke with President Morales in May of this year. Those of us who work in and for Bolivia were very hopeful that this might lead to an improved situation in the diplomatic relations between Bolivia and the United States. Where are we in that process, and do you see a, an exchange of ambassadors in the future? Well, I do see a, an exchange of ambassadors in the future. This grieves me very much that we don't have diplomatic relations and good working relationships with uh, Bolivia. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that when uh, Evo Morales was elected, uh, with a clear majority, by the way, one of the first times in history that Bolivia has seen that, uh, he came from nowhere. Uh, he was the head of the Coca Producers Organization. 
And he had about 3% in the public opinion polls the first time I went to Bolivia. I spoke to the, uh, to the Congress there. He was a member of the Congress, and I had a chance to meet him, and I liked him. Uh, then uh, in the next election, he was running for president, and the U.S. ambassador went to Evo Morales' home district and condemned him. And his public opinion jumped up from 3% to 23%. And he was almost elected then, in the next election, he got a majority. I like Evo Morales very much. He's a down-to-earth, uh, farmer-type, uh, indigenous Indian. Uh, he knows about peanuts. He's been to my peanut farm. I'm just giving you his highest credentials now. And I think he's, uh, he's tried to elevate the status of the formerly deprived people in Bolivia, as is going on in many countries around Latin America, uh, including uh, El Salvador, including, uh, uh, you might say Venezuela, inc including Ecuador, where formerly excluded people have now pushed forward and taken over political power. And, and the power structure, some of them very wonderful people, of being challenged for the first time. And, and the United States government in the past has basically been in bed with the power structure for our own economic and political benefits. And these upstarts are, are not very popular uh, quite often in the State Department. So I, I hope that uh, Morales will be less militant. Uh, when we were there for our last trip, we met with him and all of his people, and then we went down to the southern part or kind of the eastern part of Bolivia, and met with the five governors who are his major opponents, and they represent the, the formal power structure. And we spent some time with them. They're going to have an election in December, uh, basically between Morales, who's likely to win, but with his opponents having an equal uh, chance to prevail, uh, with members in the parliament and so forth. And, and the big problem now is can they get an electronic a voting system and voter registration system based on fingerprints in time. The Carter Center is deeply involved in this. So I, I hope and expect that the future will see, maybe after the December election, uh, full and normal and friendly relationships develop between our two countries. It would be to the advantage of Bolivia and also our nation. And Evo came to Plains and went into the peanut fields, and now he's demanding, not demanding, but he, he's just insisting that Jimmy... Uh, goes to his cocoa field. So when he goes back, I don't know how he's going. I don't know how you're going to go with that. Get away with that going. <laughs> well, if my wife can chew coca, then I can go to cocoa field. <laughs> right. Of course, if President Carter visits a candidate's fields, then he has to visit every candidate's fields. So uh, that could be a very busy trip. Many countries in Africa are still struggling with good governance issues. We hear about the Carter Center health programs in Africa, but what are you specifically doing to help the governance issues in Africa? Well, one of the things we do, obviously, is to help with elections. Uh, we've held uh, two or three elections in Mozambique. We've held two or three elections in Zambia. We've had four, about four elections, I think, in Ghana. Uh, we've had elections in Nigeria, which were not good at all. Uh, we've done the same thing in Liberia three or four times. We've been in Ethiopian-held elections. So we've done this in a number of countries trying to make sure they have democracy and know what democracy means. In addition that, to that, with our benevolent programs uh, for health care and for agriculture and so forth, 
We work very closely with the governments, and uh, we have a, a mechanism that I'd explained to you already tonight that we don't send money in and contribute to the potential corruption. And I think we've kind of set an example for them of proper relationship between the leaders of a nation, quite often who came out of the revolutionary background. They, they were the ones that overthrew the colonial powers from Europe, or either they're, they're the second generation of doing that. They have no experience really in how to conduct uh, a department or how to collect uh, taxes and account for them or how to have a comprehensive health program or things of this kind. So as we work with them and help them in their stature, I don't think there's any doubt that we contribute indirectly, I don't want to brag or exaggerate it, to the uh, evolution of a, of a better system of delivering proper services to the people under the sometimes despotic leaders. And we have the access to information. Uh, that, that's right. I forgot that. It's very important. We also have what's called access to information, where we encourage countries in Latin America and also in Africa now, and other places too, China even, to have uh, laws passed that guarantee the citizens access to information that in the past have been kept secret. And, and this has a dramatic impact on reducing the temptation for and the actually adoption of corrupt practices. In, in the past, for instance, they would just hand out uh, contracts to build roads and, and highways, highways and, and schools and, and, and airports to their friends, and, and now they have to account in, in many increasingly number of countries at our, at our uh, instigation or, or leadership uh, to make this information available to the public, which cuts down on corruption. Now, I was handed a question that said, this is very important from an Emory student. And is, what do you think the U.S. position on climate change should be, and how do you feel about the bill that is pending in the Senate? Well, I, I think we should go much further and have a charge directly for carbon production. Uh, I think all of the uh, experts and scientists agree that that's the only uh, way to be efficient uh, in controlling the uh, uh, eruption of carbon and other products of that kind into the atmosphere. The, the so-called cap-and-trade system, which is working, uh, I would say, partially in Europe, uh, has a cost, I believe the latest cost is about $20 per ton. In other words, if you reduce your production one ton, then you get paid $20. If you and your power company produces extra uh, ton, then you have to pay $20, and that money's transferred back and forth. So it rewards people for cutting down on pollution. Uh, when the United States uh, Congress in the House passed that bill, they reduced the value of a ton of uh, carbon, guess what? Zero. So that's the cap-and-trade system that we now have. It might have some slight benefit but in general, it was kind of abandoned as a, an incisive and really uh, meaningful uh, legislation to control uh, global warming and other pollution in the future. I hope that, um, that they'll change in the, in the months ahead when we get health care out of the way and so forth and, and really concentrate on a, uh, a carbon control mechanism that would be meaningful. The theory is known. It's just a matter of um, 
oil companies and automobile manufacturers and power producers like Georgia Power Company and others who are very wonderful people. They just don't want to see any restraint placed on how much carbon they produce. Can you tell us more about situations like the Indonesian elections where dozens of people were standing for one seat and scores of candidates for the presidency? What kind of problems did that pose? Well, we were invited in by, strangely, by a, a man that Rosa and I had happened to know that became the uh, vice president of Indonesia, which is an enormous country, uh, by far the largest Muslim country on earth. And he had been to visit us in our home, and, uh, and he had stepped down when the dictator was put in under arrest, and, and, and the dictator stepped down, and, and uh, the vice president moved up and invited the Carter Center to come in and monitor the election. We went there. It was the first democratic election that Indonesia had ever attempted. At that point, they only elected members of parliament, 500 of them. And there were 48 different political parties, I remember, uh, on thousands of islands and so forth. And so we did the best we could, and it came out to be a very honest and fair election. And then those 500 members of the parliament had added onto them 200 more of people that didn't have an adequate chance to be elected, uh, members of the armed forces and uh, youth groups and women's groups and things of that kind. So they added up to, uh, to a total of 700 members of the parliament, and then those 700 voted for the president. Five years later, with, that was a very successful, although they had to change presidents in between uh, because of various reasons. It takes too long to explain. But then in the five years later, they had another election. The Carter Center was back there, and this time it was a direct election by the people of their president. And then, uh, as, as you know, that president has now been reelected. So I would say that Indonesia is well on the way to being a permanent and dependable democracy. It still has some very serious problems with uh, isolated terrorism in some of the islands. Uh, for instance, there's a very serious problem of struggle between Muslims and Christians and persecution. But uh, I feel very good about the future of Indonesia. Uh, politically and also economically, they've come back well. And so that's been one of the, that's the biggest election in which we've ever participated. And I would say over, over, overall, maybe the most uh, meaningful to more people. Well, I want to thank all of you for great questions. Unfortunately, we don't have time to cover all of them, but we will take one final question. And I'm very interested in the answer and that the question is, what new initiatives do you and Mrs. Carter envision for the future? <laughs> well, uh, we'll continue doing what you tell us in the Carter Center, of course. And, and as I mentioned earlier, I would say that even in the health field, uh, as we have uh, final achievements by eradicating guinea worm, then the International Task Force on Disease Eradication will open up opportunities for us to decide whether or not we should take on another disease as a project for eradication. And measles might be one of those. I, I, don't, I won't go into detail about that. So the Carter Center will keep us involved. I, I'm going to continue my effort in the Middle East uh, trying to work for peace there for Israel and Israel's neighbors. Uh, we have, I have a, taken on an additional task two years ago, and that is a member of the so-called elders. 
this is about a dozen, you might say, political has-beens uh, who, who have graduated from the political arena but uh, have served uh, in, in a very responsible way. And that includes Nelson Mandela and his wife and, and Bishop Tutu and former Secretary General of the United Nations, Kofi Annan, uh, me, the former president of, um, of um, Brazil, Cardoso, the former president of, uh, of uh, Ireland, Mary Robinson, who also was the first United Nations High Commissioner on, on Human Rights, the former Prime Minister of Norway, Grove Brundtland, who headed up the World Health Organization. That's a group of us who work on things, and I'll continue to do that on kind of a part-time basis. And the other thing that Rosa and I will continue to do, as long as we're physically able, is much more taxing for us physically, and that is to build houses for Habitat for Humanity. Uh, this year, we will go overseas again. We go back and forth, domestic and overseas. I believe this will be our 26th year, and we work a full one week, and along with a, a wide range of volunteers, all the way from 3,000 volunteers to 11,000 volunteers, we build from maybe 50 houses to 200, I think the highest number is 293 houses in, in five days. This year we're going to the Mekong River Delta area uh, in uh, Vietnam and Laos and uh, Thailand, and we're going to go across the border into the Chengdu, Chengdu area of China where they had the horrible earthquake to build a few houses. So we'll continue to do that as well. And I would say the most challenging uh, opportunity for us in the future is raising our family. Uh, we now have uh, 11 grandchildren. We have two great-grandsons. And this year, including maybe later this week, we'll have three great-granddaughters born. And these are the first girls born in our family in 22 years. So we'll have our hands full, as you can see, in a lot of ways, raising three brand-new great-granddaughters, all of whom I'm sure will be competing with each other for the best clothes and the most beautiful and and the most attention from their great-grandparents, at least I hope so. So those are some of the things we have in the future. Well, the mental health program has a primary care initiative that we are launching, um, trying to train primary care doctors in the southeast how to recognize mental illnesses, and then when they recognize them, who to refer them to. Um, and we're also beginning a mental health program in Liberia. As for me, today, yesterday, I got my book that I've been writing for three years um, to the copy editor. I finished it, and so I'm going <laughs> to relax for a while. <laughs> I don't have a new personal um, agenda. I'm, I'm kind of through for a little while. <laughs> So Rosen is available for some more. <laughs> we'll work on another assignment. Thank you all so much. We, we're so grateful to you. That's our main. Thank you. Thank you.
If, a few closing announcements. Special thanks to President and Mrs. Carter for taking the time to be with us, and also special thanks to you for your interest in our work and learning more about the work of the Carter Center and problems facing not only our nation but our neighbors around the world. The next program of the Carter Center Conversation Series will be October 28th, and it will be the Carter Presidency Revisited. A panel of scholars will assess the relevance of the key policies of the Carter administration and what that relevance is to today. Speakers will include Kevin Matson, who is the author of What the Heck Are You Up To, Mr. President? Also, museum director Jay Hakes, who authored a Declaration of Energy Independence and Steve Hockman, the Carter Center Director of Research and Faculty Assistant to President Carter. You can RSVP for this event online, again, at the cartercenter.org website, beginning on September 28th. We also hope that you will visit the new museum at the Presidential Library and Museum, which is being completely redesigned and opens on October 1st, President Carter's 85th birthday. If you are unable to be here for that event at 10.30 on a.m. on October 1st, you can watch that uh, ceremony live again at cartercenter.org. Thank you very much for being with us tonight. Drive safely. Good night. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center online at cartercenter.org.